My name is Noble Armstrong. I'm one of the elders here at Webster Bible, and I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the prodigal son, uh, and it's a p- parable, and that passage is found in Luke 15. So if you want to turn there in the Pew Bibles, um, it's on page 821, if you'd like to take a look at that. Um, but before we start read passage and kind of breaking things down, um, we need to set the story in context a little bit and kind of see what's going on here. Um, you probably all know that Jesus spent a lot of time with people of all walks of life, uh, people from all different backgrounds and things like that. And um, a lot of these people were considered sinners by the scribes and Pharisees during this time. These were the Jewish leaders, and uh, they felt they were pretty elite, and they felt they were holier than other people, and frankly, better than other people. Um, makes me think of a story. A number of years ago, my dad and I were someplace, and a guy walked past us wearing a tank top. And he was pretty muscular, and we could tell by the way he carried himself that he was very aware of his physique. And as he walked past, my dad turned to me and said, he's pretty pleased with himself. <laughs> and that's what I think of when I think of the Pharisees. They were pretty pleased with themselves. Um, the chapter starts off saying in verses 1 and 2, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So that's kind of setting the stage. And in response to that, Jesus tells three different parables. Um, We heard Damien and Erica read the first two of the parables in verses 3 through 10 just a few minutes ago. But all three of these parables go together. They all teach kind of a similar theme. The basic idea is something is lost and then found again. Um, I've heard it described that these three parables are, are like the same melody played by three different instruments. They all have the same song, but they have a different music to them, and they're just their own unique style. Jesus was a master teacher and a storyteller, and he really knew how to make connections with people by bringing relatable, everyday situations and then tying that to a deeper spiritual meaning. Uh, He could make common concepts that the audience would understand with everlasting and eternal-type concepts for them. Now, I've known and loved the parable of the prodigal son for most of my life. Um, It's a beautiful story of hope and redemption and love. Um, Charles Dickens once called it the finest short story ever written. I think it's kind of interesting because you can see the theme of redemption through a lot of Dickens' work, whether it be A Tale of Two Cities or, of course, A Christmas Carol. When we look at this story, we're going to meet three main characters, the father, his younger son, and his older son. And I think there's a lot of things we can learn from each of these three men. Let's pray, and then we'll kind of get into this. Dear Lord, as we look into your word this morning and think about this passage, I pray that you will clear our minds of distractions. Help us to listen to what you'll have us to learn. Convict us and encourage us through this parable, I pray. Amen. So we're going to start things off. We're going to call this Act 1, The Selfish Son, and it's in verses 11 through 20a. So again, it's Luke 15, uh, verses 11 through 20a, and I'll read them now. And he said, this is Jesus talking, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So as I said a moment ago, this is commonly referred to as the prodigal son. And that term is not used in the, in the story anywhere, as Jesus told it. It comes from the definition of the word prodigal. And for most of my life, I assumed prodigal meant something like lost or runaway or something like that. But it, it doesn't, actually. If we look at the Oxford Dictionary definition of it, the word prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. So if you think about that definition, he was definitely wasteful and extravagant with his spending. So there's where we get the name prodigal son. The story starts out when this son approaches his father and tells him he wants his inheritance. So in those days, when a father would die, his inheritance would be split up among his sons. And according to Deuteronomy 21.17, the older son would get a double portion and the remainder would be split up among his other sons. So in this case, with two sons, the older son would get two-thirds and the younger son would get one-third. So the problem here is the father's still alive. So basically by saying this, the son is saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. He just wants the money. This would have been shocking for a son to do, and no doubt those hearing Jesus tell this story were outraged. The nerve of this ungrateful kid asking his father for his inheritance while he's still alive. But the thing Jesus told them next probably shocked them even more. The father agreed. This sort of thing just wasn't done. The disrespect that this father received would have typically been met with a harsh response, or maybe even a physical response. But this father, says, simply divided the property between them. Now, something to realize about this this situation, it's not like this dad had all his money in the bank and he can go make a withdrawal and quietly pay off his ungrateful son. His value was in the things that he owned, his land, his animals, his property. And so in order to give this to his son, he's going to have to sell all these things and divvy them up and give one-third of this to his son, all the equipment, all the buildings, all the animals. What an embarrassing thing to have to do for this father. Now, once taking possession of these things, the son wanted to liquidate all of them. He wasn't going to go off and sow his wild oats, bringing a caravan of animals and crops with him. He wanted cash. So picture this son selling off all of his father's things to the people in the village. Right? He wants money from all this stuff. And with every purchase, more and more people are realizing that this son is choosing money over his father's life. Each plot of land, each chicken and goat, more and more people could see where the son put his importance. And with every transaction, the father received more and more shame. Everyone was made aware that this son valued these things more than his father's life. Within a few days, this son had sold everything that he had. And he gathered everything up, and he took off for a faraway land. And he was ready to live it up, away from the influence of his father and all the rules and regulations he'd been under his whole life. He was ready to live his best life ever. But we see very quickly things take a turn for the worse. We're told that he squandered his possessions through reckless choices. The King James Version uses the term riotous living. It doesn't go into a lot of details, a little more detail added by his brother later, but we can probably connect the dots. Okay. He blew through this money incredibly quickly. And it must have been a lot of money because later on we're going to learn this family had multiple servants, so they were a well-to-do family. We look at this son at his low point, and we can see that he's lost and far from home. But the fact is, he was lost long before this. Philip Ryken, in his excellent commentary in the book of Luke, Luke writes, He was lost when he was still at home, even before he left the farm. 
He was lost, lost in selfishness, ingratitude, rebellion, and greed. He was lost in his rejection of authority. But mainly he was lost because he did not love his father. And to add insult to injury, just when all his possessions were gone, a famine hits the land. So he has to get a job working for a guy taking care of his pigs. Now, this is not a good job for a Jewish man. <laughs> the law in Leviticus made it clear that Jews were not to eat pigs, and they were, they were ceremonially unclean. Okay? There was even a saying back then that said, Cursed be the man who would breed swine. So he was certainly living a miserable existence, having to do, sink to this job that was so looked down on by his people. And he's starved, and he's embarrassed. And the story says in verse 17, he came to himself. So you could say before that, he was beside himself. He was out of control. He didn't know what to do. And he comes up with his plan to beg his father for forgiveness and tried to live as one of his hired hands, no longer worthy to be a son. This is no doubt based on the fact that he knew his father was kind and fair. So he's going to rehearse what he's going to say to his father. And it tells us in verse 18, he plans to use the line, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So I think it's clear that by saying heaven in this case, he means God. Okay, this tells me that the son is not merely saying, I made a bad choice. This was an error in judgment. He knew this was a sin. And he knew that it was a sin primarily against God. This makes me think of a situation with David when he's approached by Nathan, the prophet, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And in um, Psalm 51.4, David writes as he's speaking to God, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, if you think about that story, David had also sinned against Bathsheba and certainly against Uriah, who he had killed. But his point was, primarily, he had sinned against the holy God. This is similar to the prodigal. The prodigal is longing to be made right with his father. And a little bit later in, in 51, David says a similar thing. In verse 10, he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You probably recognize that as a song that we sing here from time to time. To me, this attitude of the prodigal showed that he had true sorrow over his sin. He was not just trying to get an easy solution to his problems. He had reached rock bottom, and he knew that he was there because of his sin. He was ready to turn from it and throw himself on his father's mercy. His path took him from humiliation to hunger to homesickness. Verse 20 tells us that he arose and went to his father. Notice that when he realizes what he had done was wrong, and he knows what he needs to do, he does it right then. He doesn't delay. He strikes while the iron is hot. I think that's a very valuable lesson for us. If God is working on your heart and giving, you're feeling a nudge to do something, whether it's repenting of a sin, stepping out in faith, supporting a ministry financially or something else, I think we need to act on that. I think it's to some degree what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians when he tells us not to quench the spirit. Sadly, there have been a number of times when I've been convicted sitting and listening to a Sunday sermon and I put off taking action and then I kind of get, get distracted and puts off to the side. And it seems the longer you resist that nudge and that urge, it gets less and less and less. I'm guessing I might not be the only one to have experienced that. Philip Riken says, The prodigal son is partly who we are, not just who we were. Because in our hearts, we want to leave home again and again. This reminds me of the line from Come Thou Fount of Every, fountain, or, Come thou fount of every Blessing, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It prone to leave the God I love. I think we need to see the temptation in our own prodigal hearts. We can have a tendency to want to run away from God when we squander our time pursuing pleasure or when we squander our talents and resources. We need to guard against that. 
We're going to pick up the story and look at Act 2, um, which is the forgiving father, in verses 20b through 24. Starts off, it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The section starts out saying, But while he was still a long ways off. I love that phrase. It's been running through my mind for weeks. I can picture this father, heartbroken, staring off into the distance, longing for his son to come back. He's been looking for ever since he's left. He's never lost interest in his son. He's never given up on his son. He's never given up hope. Alistair Begg writes about the situation, and unfortunately, I don't have a Scottish accent. I wish I did. Although the son was far away from the father's house, he was never away from his father's heart. And finally, this day, after who knows how many, looking off that horizon, (laughs) sees this boy coming home. So the father felt compassion and ran to him. You have to understand, Middle Eastern patriarchs during this time did not run. Okay? He would not have had a 26.2 or 13.1 bumper sticker on the back of his donkey. Okay, If he did have a bumper sticker, it would have been this one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In order to run back then, he had to lift his robe up and bare his legs, and it was completely undignified, and it was not done. And yet he didn't care. He was willing to shame himself to show his son how much he loved him. And this apparently wasn't just a little jog. The Greek word here is draymon, which was used for competitive foot races. So this is like a full-out sprint. Okay? He ran because he couldn't wait to see his boy. It's also possible that he ran to protect his son from criticism and ridicule and possible persecution from the community. Back then, there was actually a cutting-off ceremony called kazaza, and that was used for any Jewish man who lost his inheritance among the Gentiles, which this guy did. What would happen is the villagers would meet this person on the outskirts of the village and they would break pottery at his feet as if to say we're breaking relations with us with you you're empty you're nothing to us okay so by quickly running to his son on the outskirts he's shielding him from this public disgrace and banishment the father bore his shame publicly to protect his son and it made his reaction made it clear that although he was lost he was now safe at home we're told the father hugs and kisses his son The King James Version uses the term falls on his neck to describe that. Now, that's a term we never say, falls on his neck. But I can totally picture what that means. I can completely see this scene. It reminds me of those videos that you might see when a soldier is on deployment and they come home and surprise their son or their, their kids or their wife. Incidentally, if you ever want me to instantly cry, one of those videos every time, guaranteed. Think about what this son must have looked like and smelled like. He was destitute, and he was living with pigs. Have you ever smelled pigs? My brother raises pigs, and I can tell you they taste good, but they smell awful. Okay? His clothes were likely caked with pig slop, okay? and the father threw himself on the son, thrilled to see him. The father's forgiveness is total and immediate. The past pain has been washed away with the joy of his son's return. There are no grudges. And this is the same way that God forgives us. 
When we confess our sins, our Heavenly Father removes our sin from us. The Bible tells us that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I am terrible with a sense of direction, but even I know that the east is a long ways from the west. (laughs) J.C. Ryle notes, the father does not say a single word to his son about his profligacy and wickedness. There is neither rebuke nor reproof for the past, nor galling admonitions for the present, nor irritating advice for the future. The one idea that is represented as filling his mind is joy that his son has come home. See, the son wanted to earn his way back, and he wanted to work as a hired hand. The father would have none of this. The father establishes his son's return to full membership in the family, and he shows him this by giving him multiple gifts. He gives him a a robe, a ring, shoes, and a meal, really a big party. And each of these symbols are signs to this son that he is restored to the family. The father does not accept his offer to be a, a hired hand. In fact, he doesn't even let him make that request. He cuts him off before he even says that. The prodigal's clothes and shoes are in tatters, so the father meets that physical need. It's like he wants to quickly erase any indication of the damage that was done while he was living in the faraway land. Just remove all of that from him. He wanted his boy to know that he's under his care. Dad's got you. The ring was likely a signet ring with maybe like a family crest or a coat of arms indicating that he can speak for and um, act on behalf of the family. And the celebration, that was something special. Okay, when they killed that fatted calf, it was clear the father was pulling out all the stops to love on his son and celebrate his return. Now, it's interesting. We do call this the parable of the prodigal son. But in some ways, it could be the prodigal father. Because if we look again at the definition of prodigal, it says spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. And you could say the father did those exact things in welcoming his son back. A second definition for prodigal is having or giving something on a lavish scale. The father certainly gives on a lavish scale. And since the father in this parable is representative of God the Father, isn't that how God gives his grace to us on that same scale? John, 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Now, to be clear, this parable is not a comprehensive explanation of salvation. Okay? Yes, the Father in the parable forgives the Son who repents from his sins, but only... There's only forgiveness of sins through the cross work of Jesus Christ, to be clear. Reichen clarifies, quote, Admittedly, no single parable is capable of presenting the whole gospel. For that, we need the gospel story itself, with the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, end quote. What this parable mainly shows us is the joy that God has in finding lost sinners. And that brings us to our transforming truth this morning, and that is God is a father who eagerly welcomes his wayward children. God is a father who eagerly welcomes his wayward children. It's important to realize that this son came to the father with nothing to offer except for his need. His need for food, his need for clothing, and most of all, his need for forgiveness. And in return, the father lavishes love and gifts on him. That's the same thing that happens when we come to God. We bring nothing to the table except our sin. God freely gives us the gift of eternal life by believing what Jesus did for us on the cross. This makes me think of one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is God takes my sin and puts it on Jesus on the cross, and they impute Jesus' righteousness onto me. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. It's believable, though. (laughs) 
We have no way to earn this gift. The cost is too high. God gives us what we don't deserve. As the song says, we stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And this, it seems, would have been a great place to end this story. It's a beautiful picture of redemption and forgiveness. But Jesus had more to teach on this topic. So the narrative continues and frankly takes a bit of a sour turn. We're going to look at Act 3, the begrudging brother, in verses 25 to 32. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Kenneth Bailey writes, We know the younger son by what he asks, the father by what he does, and the older son by what he does not do. You see, the older son was lost. He was just close to home. He never went to a faraway land to live wildly. He stayed put, and he served out of obligation. All the while, no doubt, comparing himself to his loser little brother. You see, like the Pharisees who this story was directed to, he was pretty pleased with himself. In consideration of the older brother's attitude here, Jan Darby writes, Where God's happiness is, their self-righteousness cannot come. If God is good to the sinner, what avails my righteousness? Now, to be fair, can't you at least see where this older brother is coming from? He watched his younger brother trade in his membership for the family for a third of his father's wealth. He stayed and watched his father's heart break as his little brother went off and blew his money on wild living, and in the end, he got what he deserved for breaking the rules. Now, with the father welcoming the prodigal back, disobedience is being rewarded, while his own obedience is not being rewarded. And to add to the injustice, this party was being funded by his inheritance. This kind of reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life and a frustrated George Bailey stuck in Bedford Falls working at the, the family building and loan while his younger brother Harry's off living it up in college. You can almost imagine the listening Pharisees nodding their head in agreement with this part of the story. See, this older brother was angry. In fact, the Greek word that describes it in verse 28 denotes an explosive rage. This was not just the sibling rivalry, a mom always liked you best reaction. At this moment, years of resentment came boiling to the surface. And his anger was not just at his brother, but at his father for all these years of service that he gave him. He viewed that with disdain. Tim Keller says about the older brother refusing to enter the party, it is not his badness keeping him out, but his goodness. It is not his sins that are keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father so much as his righteousness. Daryl Bach in his commentary of the book of Luke writes about this section. The text also warns us through the older brother that activity for God itself or proximity to him is not the same as knowing him through a relationship grounded in a conscious, humble turning to him. The older brother sees God more as a taskmaster who uses his service rather than as a gracious father. When we come to God on the basis of his grace, humbly recognizing our need for him rather than trying to earn his favor, 
we find the arms of God ready to welcome us in celebration. This older brother's shameful reaction would be like a, a son starting a shouting match with his father at his sister's wedding. It would have just been so shameful and embarrassing. And yet, despite this, the father is quick to defend the younger brother and encourage his older sibling to welcome him as well. It shows that he has has forgiven the son completely, and he's acting as a peacemaker. The elder son didn't want anything to do with his younger brother. Notice how he calls him this son of yours. This kind of reminds me of like when Heather will say, do you know what your son did today? (laughs) I have to tell you a story along those lines. Uh, This happened a number of years ago. I don't want to embarrass any of my kids, so I won't be specific. I'll just give you the clue. His name rhymes with John. Um, <laughs> John was probably like about six years old, and I came home from school one day, and Heather goes, do you know what John called Daniel today? And I'm going, no. My head is spinning. I'm like, oh, great. What did, what did John say? And, and I'm thinking, he doesn't even ride the bus. That's where I learned all the bad words I knew. So at dinner, I uh, say, John, do you want to tell me what you called your brother Daniel? And six-year-old John looks at me and says, an invasive species? <laughs> I started dying laughing. I, there's moments as a parent where you're just like, I have nothing to say. I don't even know. I probably didn't even dress it. I, John, don't call your brother an invasive species. You have to love homeschool trash talk. Um, <laughs> but unlike my sons that thankfully get along, these brothers were not seeing things eye to eye. Okay? And he wanted nothing to do with his younger brother. He viewed him as a sinner, just like the Pharisees did. Okay? But the father is kind and patient. Okay? He even turns it around and says, this brother of yours, he's trying to soften his heart and show him, your family, your brother, we love each other. The ending was really an example of Jesus saying to the listening Pharisees, you're invited to the party too. Repent and come to the father through the Messiah who was standing right in front of them. Now, this narrative ends without us knowing the rest of the story. Does the older brother have a change of heart? Does he follow his father's example and lovingly accept his brother back into the family? Does he partake of the fatted calf and party it up? Or does he pridefully retreat, feeling good about himself? We don't know. But we can use his example as a caution to examine our own hearts. I want to look at some applications from this parable. I came across, I think, a very helpful quote from R.C. Sproul. It's a little bit longer, but it's about this exact passage. uh, The quote says, It is good and wise to recognize ourselves in the Bible. I always encourage people with this rule of thumb. If you want to know who you are in a Bible story, you are the sinner. (laughs) Thanks in part to this very, excuse me, uh, thanks in part because of this very parable, I add this. If the story has more than one sinner, you're both of them. (laughs) We're both the brothers in the parable of the prodigal son. We squandered the gifts given to us by the father. We dishonor and disobey him. We pursue our own ends, seeing him as merely the supplier of our needs so we can get on with acquiring our wants. On the other hand, we're also like the older brother, thinking ourselves rather fine fellows. We don't sin as outrageously as the heathen we see on television. We aren't hedonists like the prodigal. We, because we are sinners, somehow manage to be both libertines and Pharisees, self-indulgent and self-righteous. So I want to look at some lessons from the older brother. Like his little brother, this son was was also lost. He just happened to be closer to the father. If we think back to the original story, the older brother would have represented the Pharisees. Now, if you need to see a clearer connection between those two, realize this brother is upset because his father is having a meal with his sinful brother. 
Look back at verse 2. It says, And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're both upset about the same exact thing. I wonder if the listening Pharisees realized that Jesus was calling them out by saying, You are the older brother. You see, this older brother seemed to think he could win the father's favor by following the rules. He didn't rebel outwardly, but inside he was likely dead. He didn't obey his father out of love and respect. He was checking off a box. In his mind, he was earning his inheritance. This is how the Pharisees lived. They were legalistic, following the rules, especially rules that they made themselves to make themselves look good. They were prideful, and they were far from the Father's heart. They didn't think fellowship with God was a gift of grace, but it was something they earned through their piety and obedience. Jesus accurately described them as whitewashed tombs, shiny and clean on the outside, dead and smelly on the inside. Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, writes this warning. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated him, alienated from him, either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. I'm going to read that one again. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him, either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. We would be wise to examine our own hearts and think if we might fall into that trap sometimes. Are we serving God as a way to earn our inheritance? by following his rules diligently? Or are we out of a grateful heart, serving and obeying as an expression of our love for him? We can turn from prodigal sons to older brothers if we're not careful. We can view ourselves as people who basically do what God wants. We think we're good people who deserve a better reward, when in fact we're bad people who can only be saved by grace. Are you a begrudging brother? Do you serve the Lord with joy in your heart or out of obligation? Does your own righteousness ever keep you from truly enjoying fellowship with God or his people? Let's look at some lessons from the Father. Now we know that the Father in this parable represents God. He's loving, kind, patiently waiting for a wayward son or daughter to come back to him. And while we obviously cannot put ourselves in the position of God, our model in life should be Jesus. It's important to point out that in some ways, the Father is an illustration of God. And in some ways, is not and cannot be. God is God, and man is man. And while only God can actually forgive sins, we can forgive people of the wrongs or hurt that they may have caused. We can restore relationships. And we can encourage others to restore their relationship with God as well. This isn't always easy an easy thing to do. Romans twelve eighteen says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So with God's help, we need to do our part to allow restoration. I know that many of you here today have a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. Maybe an aunt or an uncle, a sister, brother, some loved one who's lost and far from home. Maybe literally, maybe figuratively. They may be far away from you in a distant land. And maybe like the prodigal in this story, they have hurt you and you can't understand why. Are you ready to forgive them? Are you watching for them a long way off? When they come back to home to you, are you ready to run with them and meet them? Potentially shaming yourself to show them that you love them, that you're ready to forgive them, to reconcile, to start over. Don't give up hope. Keep looking, keep praying and waiting. God is in the business of reconciliation. And although this father in the story did not pursue his son, he never gave up on him. 
Once the son came back with an attitude of sorrow for what he had done and ready to change, the father did not rub his nose in it. Our Heavenly Father will gladly forgive any person who confesses, repents, and throws himself on his mercy. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this father's willingness to suffer shame for both of his sons is a small picture of what Jesus did for mankind as he hung on the cross. On that day, the perfect, holy maker of the universe was insulted, humiliated, and crucified by those he created, all to reconcile us to God, to cover our sins, and pay the price we deserve to pay. Let's look at some lessons from the younger son. Although this man did a lot of things wrong, he finished well. When he reached rock bottom, he realized he was in the situation he was in because of his choices. He took responsibility for his sin. He swallowed his pride, came to his senses, and realized that he had sinned against heaven and before his father. He took action right then. He didn't delay. Christian brother or sister, if the Lord is prompting you to make a change, to reach out to forgive someone, to start reading your Bible more consistently, to put yourself out there to witness, to help someone, do it. Don't put it off. Strike while the iron is hot. Some of you hearing this message may find you identify with the position of the prodigal son himself. Maybe you've been far from God, living life your own way, and realizing the things you tried to fill it with, they're not satisfying. You feel God calling you to follow him, maybe for the first time, or maybe you've been back and forth on this path a number of times. That describes where you find yourself right now. Don't delay. Take action today. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For God says, At just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. The prodigal son gives us a proper model for repentance. He confesses his sins and he moves away from them. In his case, he confessed his sins and went back to his father. In our case, we should confess and approach our Heavenly Father. John 1, 1 John 1, 9 makes it clear when it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the primary word for confess here is homologeo, which means to say the same thing. It means we're agreeing with God. God knows when we sin. He knows our hearts. He knows our actions. But by agreeing with him, it shows that we are acknowledging that we are wrong and we want to turn from it. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can do that right now. You can turn from the path you're on and come to your heavenly father. He's waiting for you to embrace you, to forgive you, to lavish the gift of salvation on you, to fill the fatted calf and have a party. Remember, God is a father who eagerly welcomes his wayward children. Will you come to him today? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this parable. Thank you that it gives us a glimpse of your love for us. You are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. We don't deserve your mercy, but gladly accept it. You patiently wait as we constantly roam. You're a father so tenderly calling us home. Thank you for calling us, dear Lord. I pray this morning for parents whose hearts are breaking for prodigal children. Give them a sense of peace and the strength to continue to wait expectantly for a homecoming. Orchestrate circumstances to soften hearts and to call children back to their waiting parents. 
I pray that you might use this story to bring a prodigal back to you, even today, to set off a great celebration in heaven with yet another seat at a table. We thank you for your goodness. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.